0: No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Talk Recorded live.
3: Black Power B forty eight Mile Hotel. Open to feet on the ground. Radio. We should bother ball Come to get it in. Same tank
4: Thursday. It's going to be a light tank Thursday, man. We're trying to, get this, uh, trying to pull this audio line so we can have a little something to listen to. Um, got a lot of things going on. Things that I don't even want to put across the air right now. You know what I mean? Because, you know, you really don't know exactly what's what and what's going where how it's going. So tonight, we really, got, uh, I'm really moving easy. And I'm opening it up with a praise turn turning glory to Garvey, long lived spirit of Dr. Khaled Abdul Muhammad, praise Harriet Tubman, glory to Ida B. Wells, and long lived spirit of Sister Fanny Wuhamer. And, um, You know, I just want to make some announcements. Uh, We will next week, we will have the uh, Lone Star RBG of being, discussing uh, future uh, RBG days. You know what I'm saying?
3: Coming up, discussing that. And that is... We'll be discussing that and that'll be uh that'll be
4: coming up for us, you know what I mean, and um uh, you know, that's coming up this this summer, August. So you know, just discussing and trying to get the family ready prepared for what's coming, you know, so you can already uh you know, if you don't got your tickets, you can already get your get, get your tickets, get booked, get your hotels and all that stuff. Uh, you know, in, in, case, you, in case you wanna be out there. So we want to get that information across to the family and so y'all would be aware uh, weird old thing. Right now at old family, I'm spending I'm sitting under a load direct
5: because I'm starting to uh let's see All
4: right. I'm just really starting to get my computer opened up correctly. Can't get the computer opened up right. I'm just really not able to get my Internet working correct.
6: So what I'm going to do real
3: quick. Uh, you go to a whole other computer. Uh, this is awesome. Open up my other computer
4: and that's already open. And I haven't seen what was going on it's just, I'm in this. I read here. I don't know who was looking at that. I don't know for what for? But, um, I think my daughter was looking at this in regards to we were talking about the, um, the cocaine, the crack wars, the crack epidemic. It, you know what and one thing about the crack epidemic is people don't speak on it enough we don't give it enough uh uh we don't look at it as the uh, the the catalyst you know even though and even though i won't really put catalyst on it but if it, it was a, a uh um you know i to say it was a it was a uh furtherance of our destruction of family. You know what I'm saying? That's what that's what I say about that thing. Is that uh crack came in and it devastated the community through its taking uh, out the mother out the home. And once you take the mother out of the home it was just mad mad savagery going on. Family wasn't you know what I mean? Family not Family ain't family no more. You know what I'm saying family is not family no more. You know when you take, uh, when, you, when you take and do that, you you know you push a drug and that uh, just basically makes it a free fall, turns the children into adults. When you, you know you got the children, they selling drugs to the teachers, to the doctors, cops. I mean, you know, what I mean, I, you know, and as a as a youth. I had some all of them people as customers, man. I'm talking about teachers, lease officers, doctors. you know, it the you know, uh customer base for crackers ran a gamut, you know what I mean, from one extreme toward to the other. You know what I mean? You have people who would make uh people was making fifteen hundred dollars a week, uh, Come in on a Friday, man.
5: Smoke
4: that shit up. You know what I'm saying? Smoke that shit up by Saturday, man. You know what I'm saying? Straight up. Come in Friday night, by Saturday morning, man. They done ran $2,000 worth of crap, man. Eight shots. You know what I'm saying? So devastating. Hold uh, on. So, you know, so I'm, I'm drawing that. We, you know, we spoke a little bit on, uh, you know, the past uh, Tuesday. We spoke a little bit on the bullshit happening in Belgium. Now we totally know it's total, a total motherfucking bullshit hoax. Uh, period, point blank. We suspected it from the beginning, but sometimes it's, uh, you know, sometimes you find out. So, um, let's see right here. Let's see right here um let me, let me see here we're gonna open up my open up my chat room real quick and then we'll open up my chat room minute, and then we'll we'll get right into it what's that
5: out
4: there somebody out there got a little bit of scruffle. know what you're moving through but it just sound like it. Um just want you to you know know that we can hear you out here. We can hear you in the world out here. But as I said, you know, we got a couple things going on then it it, it's just there's really just not uh make the family not really uh, so uh we ain't so upbeat right now. For the past week or so if you are regular on the show you'll understand what we're talking about. If you're not a regular on the show, you might be off the loop, but we're missing a member of the crew. And it's just, um, and then over this little bit of time, it's not that the crew can't keep moving, but it's just, uh, the, the mannerism that the, uh, our family member abruptly has, has left the crew. It just really, um, put us on an imbalance. You know what I mean? So, you know, um, the, the, the other crew member is one who balances out the rest of the family, you know what I mean, and, and, and helps with the direction of the show, you know, and and being one of our stronger voices on the show, you know, is a lot of times you know you just really you are uh, you be you be uh, I say fiending for that energy, you know what I'm saying? So right now you know this is like man, what the fuck's going on? So, we, we we got a little APB going out. So, you know, tonight, uh, I spoke to the family. We won't, it's not really too much to discussion on Thursday. We just want the people to reflect. Uh, reflect on keeping in contact with each other, man. Right? World life. Really understanding what this African liberation is about and that it's dangerous in African liberation. That's one of the that's one of the reasons why you know I think that the family is just a little distraught because we we understand the
7: dangers.
4: You know what I'm saying? And what what's going on? We understand the dangers in being, you know, in um, being a revolutionary. We know that there's inherent dangers in being a revolutionary. So with that being with that being said, you know, we just really looking forward to having a, you know, uh, having everything get back right, you know. We have a, a update for the family Saturday. Everything should be up this you know what I mean, we should have things up to speed. We really put some real you know what I mean, we put it as we see, you know, feet on the motherfucking ground. You know what I mean? We put feet on the ground. Uh, and and just
3: really going to move
4: forward with that. Uh, For the family out there who subscribes to the debates and shit like that, we're not, fuck that. We're not, uh, you know, we really ain't going to debate a whole bunch of people too much no more, and we just seen a lot of bullshit going on, so we just want to stay away from it. Just want to stay away from it.
3: My uh, brother uh, put me on to a, a situation where we, you know, we could been checking out uh,
4: information on Black Wall
3: Street uh, Just a little history, left, a little history lesson But um, I don't know what the hell is going on My says it's not working today. Not working
4: today. I uh, mean, you know, what the hell is going on? It's not doing the right
3: thing for me. But as I said, next week we will have in the Long Star RBG on um, this Saturday coming up. We
4: will be dealing with geography. So y'all make sure when you come in this Saturday, 10 p.m. Bring, uh, you know, have your maps ready, um, and we're going to be just dealing with uh, geography, uh, history, and, and the politics of the land and how to control your land. You know what I mean? So we're going to be dealing with that right there.
3: We definitely want you all in tune for that. Damn, I'm, I'm not finding the video
5: in
4: this video. I don't know why. Power, like somebody just got off their car just now. Or You might be in the grocery store. Who's ringing now? Who ringing out? I know you hear me. You can, can hear you. can hear you. You can hear me because we can hear you. But just I tell mean, that's what the, that's what's going on tonight. So we got that we got that rolling, and um, just want to just want to put the people up on, some, on on something different. So what
3: I'm what I'm gonna do is um, let's see, let's see right here. to pull this Amos Wilson.
4: Black love, black male and black female uh, relationships. that's that's what I'm uh, looking for. You know, plug that in, plug that Amos Wilson in, and then we'll uh, we'll let that we'll let that rock. And then you know, uh, family like I said, man, you know we we got a lot of things going on, and we really um, you know you know what I'm know you know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna play feel good history. That's the one That's the one that I'm gonna go for. I don't know, family on the line, which one would y'all rather hear? You know, and I see y'all out there if you don't want answers, it's all right. But which one would y'all wanna listen to by Doctor Amos Wilson?
3: Would you wanna Would you wanna listen to Feel Good History?
4: Or you know what feel good history uh black love black male and black female relationships
3: or or would you like to have a uh, riot or revolt urban responses to white hegemony all right all right well I um um black power family. Black Power.
4: Yeah, that last one sounds sounds good. That's my vote. Yes sir, yes sir. well thank you very much. I see a couple of family out there, but yeah, I I think that's I think that's in tune with some of the things that we got going on right now and really where we're headed to. You know what I mean? Or where we should be headed to and have on our minds. So thank you very much, family. So we like to think, what's your name, Brother Sergeant so Major? was who, who, the brother name who just said that? Brother, uh, brother Dre from Dallas. Oh, uh, Brother Dre. All right, Brother Dre. Black Power. Black Power, Chief. Yeah. but, but we to, you know, uh, Brother Dre gave us a good, a good suggestion, and I'm, and I'm glad. So for the rest of the family out there in Texas, Connecticut, North Carolina, everybody listening in, New York City, uh, Louisiana, you know what I mean. Cali, California, for more Cali peoples and all that. What we're we going to do, we're going to hit this Amos Wilson Ride or Revolt Urban Responses to White Hegemony.
3: We're going to open
4: this up real quick, and I'm going to mute everybody's line, and we're going to get it in for tonight.
3: <laughs> One moment. That's good to hear Alright family I'm gonna, let, me, let me pull this back Let me get this Let me get this right I'm going to pull this back
4: Hold on one second I have to Start this all over Because I had it queued And it started playing Before I can get it right
3: Here we, here we go
2: Just the sound Of where we are And the things that affect us And um We we kind of selected that topic because that's the the burning issue now, and it really rests on top of all the things that Dr. Wilson has been talking about. You know, so um, he's got two new books out, and we had just got them in, and um, I don't even recall, they're so fresh, the the names of of the two of them, but there's two new books added to Black-on-Black Violence and the uh, Psychological Development of Black Child, and I understand that... um, Dr. you're working on another piece. And the sister was telling me the other day that another book is on the way out. So, um, I mean, that's that's good to hear that, too, that you, you, you're you producing, you know, uh, the works for us. But without any further delay, let's put our hands to, uh, together and welcome Dr. Amos Wilkins. Thank you.
5: Thank
2: you very
4: much. It's indeed a pleasure to be invited to spend this time again here with you today. I appreciate your coming out on uh, a holiday like this and on a day like this. And, of course, I want to wish all of the fathers and parents Happy Father's Day. Mm-hmm. I want to also thank you for uh, patronizing the publications that were mentioned and asking, I'm asking you to look forward to a number of others. Uh, the response to black on black violence has been very good, and I see the hmm, awakening, the natural genius of black children, has taken off very well. Those of you. For me, with the developmental psychology of the black child, we will sort of see that Awakening the Natural Genius of Black Children is a related publication. And it's not an accidental name, of course, because for those of you who read the developmental psychology of the black child, you certainly have recognized that our children have a natural genius, our children have a natural head. You will note in that book, which is very short, less uh, there's less psychological jargon than black on black. So perhaps you'll have
5: less of a time. <laughs>
4: it might help sometimes if you would uh, read this one and go back. Even though I do encourage you to stick with black on black, though. Uh, the outline there is, is if you give it a little time and meditate with it, you'll find that it's, it's not uh, – difficult to crack. Because essentially as the title implies, what we're dealing here is with is how our people are motivated by white domination to destroy themselves. And so we're dealing here with the psychology of self destruction as as motivated and created by a ruling group. So I think what catches a lot of people is the approach. We're so so used to sort of looking at so-called crime and criminality as a result of broken homes, as a result of drugs in the neighborhood, the presence of weapons in the neighborhood, the absence of employment, and so forth. And while these things contribute to violence and contribute to criminality in the community, I do not see them as the primary causes. And to a good extent, you can take your hint from the fact that if these causes are tried out in the media, that is, if it's standard talk in the media shows to talk about the black family as the cause of, of problems with our children or unemployment as a chief cause of crime or drugs, the very fact that the ruling establishment projects those explanations should make you suspicious. Okay? Because the main function of their explanations is to deny their own role in the situation and is to obscure The real and true causes. They will invariably talk about secondary causes. You see, the so called broken black family, the so called crisis in the black family is not a cause, it's an effect. You see, the presence of drugs and guns are also effects. The presence the presence of unemployment is also an effect. Miseducation also affects. And when you start looking at those as primary causes, you're going to almost invariably go wrong. Because all of these result from one major thing that is the fact that black men are still committing white men to run this world and that black men have not decided yet fully to bring an end to the rulership of this world by white men. And, And until that happens, you are going to get violence at various levels in the community. So black on black deals with that. Essentially, it is dealing with white on black violence. And moves from from that, and the and the psychology of it is is that this violence is hidden often or denied. It also deals with the fact that the European man and the white man is the most criminal man earth has ever seen, the most murderous world has ever known, who run this world based on terror, murder, and criminality. The interesting thing is, many people see them as symbols of sanity, and many of us want our children to be just like theirs, and all of this kind of thing, and that's, that's, that's interesting. It's a very interesting situation. And so we, we got to look at that psychology. And so to a great extent, we see here a system designed to create this image that goes directly against the obvious history of these people, where the victims themselves see their major goal as, that, as one of intermixing with these murderers and see the highest point of their lives as that of living among them. These people. That's, that's, it's, and so it gets a little complicated, but it's important that you understand this kind of system. Because, as I point out a little more clearly, I think, in understanding black male adolescent violence, you see,
3: that the major point here is that these people try to hide that
4: criminality. And the whole of the system is built around denial of criminality. And the major method then of denial of their criminality is projection to accuse others of being criminal. And that's the essence of what we're talking about. That's why in the first section, you see the reference to projection, you see, and denial. you look at these people as having a collective ego, and their major wish is to maintain their image of being morally superior, you see, in spite of their record, in spite of the fact that this is a criminal nation, this is a criminal government, this is one organized mafia unit of the United States that this nation is founded on two major crimes the rape and robbery and murder of the native american and the theft of their lands and of course upon the enslavement and death of our own people no constitution no set of laws no beautiful preamble will cover the stench of those original sins. And they will still be at the center and heart of this nation. I don't care how you try to cover it up uh, in the name of democracy and these other kinds of things. And there has been no other ethnic group that has created this kind of record. And yet, as I said earlier, this group has managed to make itself appear to be superior and has managed to try to even lecture other groups and people about their moral behavior. But, of course, if you wish to hide your criminality, then a good method and technique is to holler, criminal, criminal, criminal out loud, and point the finger at someone else. This is what we call. This is what we call projection. As Clinton Cox indicated, a white man calls the image Indian a savage, so that he can justify treating him savagely. <laughs> and that's that's the way the ball game plays, and this is the essence of projection. You see, it provides an excuse, it provides an image and a rationale, and it removes the onus from the true perpetrator on to the victim. And so the Indian is a savage, and now this allows us to deal with him savagely to rob and kill him and take his land. The African is a criminal, therefore we can treat him criminally. This is the other part of the equation that means then since they are savages and they are
3: criminals, we are criminals. That's what projection is about, and that's what Black on Black is talking about just in
4: his very first chapters. he follows that up by saying then, when you combine projection with power, then you have a vehicle for creation and bringing into reality what may, at first, was a false accusation. At first, you accuse the other of being a criminal.
3: But if you have the power to create the conditions,
4: you see, certain conditions, if you have the power such that, that person reacts incorrectly to your accusation, if you have the power such that the only information they get about themselves is the information that you give them, then projection becomes a creative process and actual criminality begins to occur. And this is again what we're getting at, at in Black on back, You see, the creation, the accusation, the creation of the conditions, and now a certain segment of that population comes into reality. And now you run out to the jails, the prisons, and you count noses. And then you start making statistical statements you're only 15% of the population, but you're another 50% of the jails, we now are therefore justified in our original conception, <laughs> and, uh, and this is what we, this is this, in essence, what does our debate like? The accusation process, the combining of accusation with power and creating of certain conditions, the reaction by those accused and projected on such in such ways that some of them will engage in behavior that we label as
5: criminal, and the use, then, of that behavior
4: and the use of the results of that behavior to try to substantiate the original accusation itself. The other part of that book, of course, deals with the fact that all too often the victim being cut off from independent sources of information, the victim somehow coming to believe in the moral superiority of the one that dominates them, in the authority of the one that dominates them, often then internalizes the attitudes projected by his dominator. And he becomes possessed by those attitudes, because those attitudes take life in his body and in his mind, and he identifies with those attitudes. And in that sense, then, he begins to look at his fellow victims through the eyes of those that dominate him, and he becomes cut off from them and alienated from them and sees them as the enemy, as the ones to be exploited and therefore engages often in violence against his own people and violence against himself. So I think we have here a relatively straightforward and simple proposition. I think if you hang in with uh, Black on Black, uh, you'll be able to see, see what we're getting at here. To a good extent, what Sister Soldier is alluding to out here, of course, is premised in the very introduction of black-on-black violence and there are references to it throughout why not victimize the victimizer the very first introduction talks about the issue of powerlessness and what powerlessness how powerlessness motivates often many of us to attack our own people. The very essence of what she's alluding to is the section where we deal with displaced aggression, where the source of the aggression and the cause of the aggression is not rooted out or attacked for a number of reasons. And the victim of that aggression reacting with frustration and anger and confused about the source of his frustration and anger or fearful to confront the source of his frustration and anger attacks fellow victims. And in a sense, he kills himself and kills his fellows because he has not yet made up his mind to kill white men. Like men will end their killing of each other the day they decide to kill white men. I mean that metaphorically and if necessarily literally on both levels. Otherwise, you will be displacing your aggression and attacking the wrong targets. And in that sense, you become an ally to your dominator. And you join with him to destroy your own. We we do have some upcoming publications I will in the fall, we'll be doing Educating the Black Child for the Black Children, the African Children for the 21st Century we want you to look after that. We are going to look at a rationale for an afrocentric and African-centered education. We will explore it on a number of levels, not just in the sense of where a knowledge of African history and culture is missing from the curriculums, from the curricula of this country and across the world but look at it from the point of view of what is the ultimate purpose for an African-centered education? Where are we going with this? Recognizing the fact that the major purpose of education is not merely lifting the self-esteem of our young people, not merely getting them to read and to write better, those things, but the ultimate function of education is to protect the very biological survival of a people. And ultimately, the quality of education must be measured against its capacity to maintain a people's survival because learning to read and write well and learning uh, skills, and so forth, it, it is pointless if you cannot defend your very lives, if you cannot stay alive in the world. The lives of African people are in serious danger today. We are under serious threat. No amount of learning skills, mathematical, computational, computer skills, engineering skills and so forth, by themselves are going to guarantee this without a sense of nation and without an overarching purpose. That purpose is that of liberation, independence, and the capacity to protect both once one gets them. And education then begins not with what the children are missing in school, not with what they are not getting in school, but it begins with the question of what are the major problems that our people must solve as people. You see. Then you follow it up with the question of what kind of people must we produce in order to solve these problems? What kind of institutions must be developed? What kind of social relations and ideologies? must be developed in order for us to secure our biological survival and secure our liberation, independence, and our capacity to protect all of these things. And you work from there because it's these overarching problems and overarching issues that lays the basis and foundation for curriculum. You see, when you ask what kind of people what kind of institutions? Then you follow that up then about then what kind of learning experiences should our children and our people undergo in order that they can be completely develop these institutions and social relations. So it's not a matter of just learning efficiency and putting knowledge and skills in people's heads.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: That knowledge, the knowledge and skills have to be correlated and coordinated with overall goals and purposes. And after you get through then looking at the kind of experiences, you want to match those up with the developmental psychology of your children, which, as you know, is not a psychology of other people's children. And you've got to know that you got to know that the, the maturation of our children differs significantly from that of white children. We know that the psychology of the people reflects their history and experience, and the history and experience of African people is not that of European people. And therefore, the psychology cannot be that of those people. And therefore, the psychology, which is the foundation of learning and teaching, cannot be the same as that of those people. And therefore, it means we have to develop a new pedagogy, a pedagogy, a, an approach to teaching and instruction that is in line with the psychology of our people and the psychology of our children, not one that's borrowed, not one that's begged, but one that is developed, one that is organically and intrinsically related to our knowledge of ourselves, and the knowledge of our history. The experience of African-American people in America and in the world in general has been such that our approaches and styles of learning are significantly different from those of white children. And therefore, an as considered education has not only been a theory that deals with the inclusion of content into the curriculum. But it is a theory, it involves in its fullest extent a theory of learning as well as theories of teaching. And so we then hope in the fall, we, we, we don't hope it will be present in the fall because we've, we've completed the, the manuscript, we're just editing it. So we will have this available so that we can combine learning theory, teaching theory, with social political theory, ideology, and purpose. I will mention another current series I'm working on, and that's our Power Series that you'll be hearing about, a series of 10 lectures that we'll be doing in the fall built around the issue of power and how to get it, how to keep it, and how to apply it the very direct way. We're going to now look for a moment at the subject matter of our lecture, Revolt, Riot,
3: or Revolt, an Urban Analysis. The subject matter is an interesting one.
4: and raises some interesting questions and implications. Riot or revolt. Sometimes you have to start off in analyzing things in terms of why the question itself. You know, sometimes we get up, I see some of us on TV, uh, we're so quick to try to answer the question we don't question the question. except "Why are you asking? <laughs> what difference is the answer going to make?" And often the question implies
3: options, depending on the answer. What would be the response if
4: I were to call the Los Angeles? Disturbances, riots, instead of revolts. An important question there. And in the sense we're asking and and making this question because we understand implicitly that when one sees it as a riot, sees it as revolt, it implies different kinds of responses different kinds of approaches. Because even though riot and revolt are not as cleanly delineated or defined as we would like to think, they do, and they overlap a great deal. They do also have some differences in implication that become important. Because often people see at essence in its essence a riot as being fundamentally irrational. Fundamentally having little or no real rational purpose, an expression of rage, frenzy, as indicative of people who have lost self-control and self-direction, as indicative of some type of psychological contagion, where people lose their ethical and moral values and are swept away by the emotions of the moment or by rumor or by agitators who happen to take advantage of their lack of self-control and who become, for the moment perhaps, their egos and direct them in various ways. They, often the word "riot" implies to a certain degree in certain circumstances, a shifting leadership or an absence of leadership, or what we might call plural. Leadership. the way They must begin to question the legitimacy of their authority. They must begin to examine whether they have actually breached a contract. They may be forced to give those that accuse them some credibility. And they may be forced to face the possibility that
3: the revolt is justified on a number of uh, bases. They may be forced to recognize that those in revolt
4: are real human beings and have humanity. And they may then have to face the fact that they truly may be wrong and immoral in what they're doing. That's asking a lot of people who are in control of And you can see why then they almost irresistibly will define any protest, legitimate or otherwise, in terms of riotous behavior.
3: Because one of the things that the authorities tend to do, of course, is to
4: defend their own collective ego. We talked learning black on my to justify their own behavior to try to maintain their own sense of superiority. They defend themselves against the possibility that if they admit even a bit that they are wrong or that their behavior is immoral, that the foundations on which their domination is built may begin to crumble. So consequently, then, from the authoritarian point of view, it becomes more advantageous for them to define our behavior, no matter how legitimate, no matter how much the accusation, of, no matter how much our behavior is justified by circumstance, to call that behavior riotous, Because it helps them to maintain their own self-image. And so in the light of this, a long debate in terms of riot or revolt from our point of view is probably not worth the energy because those that run the society will insist on seeing it as riotous behavior. Perhaps we need to convince some of us of, this, of the fact that we are not talking about riotous behavior. But from the point of view of those that run the society,
3: it is pointless. As long as we are sure
4: that our behavior represents a statement about our condition and about our humanity. And that is all we need to push forward to achieve our goals. One of the other things that worries people about the disturbances in L.A. and other similar ones is the nature of violence. And yet we have to face the fact that violence is often what we call the handmaiden of revolutions, insurrections. I hear some people out here now condemning violence in a wholesale manner. I'm against all forms of violence. Hmm. Well, you can be against it, but that's not going to change the reality of it. And if violence has been with us a long time, it's going to be with us for a while Yeah trying to deny it and make pious statements against it uh, is not going to solve the issue and solve the problem. Ultimately, we must confront the role of violence and what it is and and what role it plays in mankind. Violence is common to many revolutions because, after all, changes are being sought by extra-legal means. and the normal channel of political influence are being short-circuited. We have some people here who think that we can have strong, deep and significant political revolutions within the legal confines of society itself. There is no legal revolution. There is no legal revolt, you see, The very essence of revolution itself is illegal or extra-legal, and violence is a form of political influence, and it is a means of exerting political influence, and violence, particularly within a system of this type, is itself revolutionary because the traditional and so-called legitimate means which exclude non-governmental violence are not only rejected, but are reversed. What are we saying here? We're saying here there are some people who try to advise us to use the system and to stay within the system. This is not a system without violence. Of course, as I indicated to you, earlier this is a system born and bred in violence. Government is not nonviolent violence and the system is not nonviolent. Government is a monopoly on violence. And to a great extent you see, behind the rules of the system lies the iron fist of the government And to a great extent, the essence of government is its monopoly on violence. And it wishes, then, to be the only party in a political conference that has violence as an instrument of enforcement. And it tells everyone else, then, that they should not use this instrument. and should follow, then, the system. But, of course, the issue becomes what happens if the system does not work and what happens if the traditional rules do not work. And one of the things we have to keep in mind, of course, is that when you have power, that power confers upon you the capacity to create rules in such a way that the power is not challenged as long as people follow the rules. As a matter of fact, one of the first things you want to do is to establish rules such that the power of the authority of the government cannot be challenged
5: through
4: following them. And that means then that the government can even use its own rules as instruments of terror and instruments of violence, as instruments of uh, maintaining oppression, and yet it seeks to deny its own population. The instruments it uses to crush that population, to defend itself against being crushed and against the hostility of government. Therefore, when the people use violence, they are engaging in an act of revolt and in a revolutionary act. In that they are stepping outside of the rules and confronting the government and confronting authorities with extra-legal, illegal means of bringing about change and of influencing the government itself. Mob violence, though it may not be the result of deliberate thought, though it may not appear to be so, the vehicle for the promulgation of ideologically based revolutionary programs and may be, in part, the momentary, seemingly trivial decision may seem to be influenced by momentary, seemingly trivial decisions made by any number of individuals in an environment of chaos, of disorganization, may nevertheless forecast revolution. So even if you call the service in L.A. and other cities, riots, does not mean that these do not, on some level, forecast revolutionary change. Of course, they may be indicative of a revolution which is already occurring. Or finally, they may indicate the need for revolution. Have to look at them, no matter how disorderly they may appear, no matter how self-destructive they may appear, no matter how superficially irrational they may appear to be, they still can be indicators of the state of the nation and they indicators of needs in societies that must be met. As a means of exerting political influence, or as a reaction to provocative political and economic circumstances, violence is a form of terror. People are horrified by so-called riotous behavior or revolts and the violence that attends them. But terror is not
3: without purpose and not without place. As terror... it emanates
4: an atmosphere of fear and despair. Fear and despair, generally accompanied by seemingly senseless and wanton threats to life and property, carried out in ways that appear to be lawless or normless, behavior that is not motivated and carried out in terms of definite mores and values. However, we should be reminded where legitimated and traditionally nonviolent means of influence in government, of righting perceived and real injustices, of satisfying grievances and complaints by aggrieved parties are of no avail, or where government has failed to keep its mandate and actually has expressed hostility toward its subjects are an important segment of its subject population. In this instance, then, the habits of obedience may be dissolved and terror in the form of violence instigated. Those of you who have reviewed Rousseau, for instance, or other writers recognize the fact that the people in a nation do not exist merely to be ruled, merely to be controlled by government, or merely to have rules and laws imposed upon them. The government ultimately is a creation of the people. And the government enters into a contractual relationship with the people. And at the foundation of the relationship between a people and its government is that of reciprocity, that of give and take, that we permit the government certain powers and certain liberties and prerogatives in return for certain services that it will provide to the people. It is not there to rule and dominate the people, but to serve the people. And as long as it's been meeting the demands of its mandate, we then will obey its demands. But when government violates the reciprocity, when government does not hold up this end of the contract, then people begin to question whether they are any longer obligated to obey its ruling and to pledge allegiance to that government.
3: This is the thing that we face today. In this country.
4: Under such circumstances, terror becomes the last resort, the logically natural instrument of influence because of its wholesale effectiveness. Where else can you go? What else can you do? What else can you do after going to the Supreme Court and being turned down, after marching day after day, time after time? after trying to get civil rights laws passed and other kinds of laws passed, going to the Democratic Conventions, going to the Republican Conventions, writing the state of black America year after year, and rewriting the same story over and over again, trying to vote, trying to do this, trying to do that. Getting agreements that the government blatantly disregards, or reverses at some point later. What else is left? What happens when government no longer listens, no longer hears the cries, the pleas of its people? How then can you get them to hear? This is ultimately implicitly or explicitly but a people who engage in revolt. These are the, this is the question that they ask themselves. And therefore, a revolt, even though it may not be conscious, has an unconscious rationality about it. And it is of great value. When I talk about power this fall, talk about the fact that as I will mention here later that social disruption are weak people's mightiest weapon against the government. And in no way should they be persuaded to not use it when necessary. Quoting from the politics of violence and revolution in the modern world Leiden and smith terror is an atmosphere of despair. What value can such an atmosphere have, people will ask. The answer lies for both those who agitate and those who defend in the effects that this atmosphere has on the mass and on the elite, effects not readily attainable by ordinary means of persuasion or coercion. There are things that cannot be accompanied, accomplished within the system by the rules of the system. Only by some extraordinary, extra-legal, extra-normal process can they be effectuated. The creation of an attitude of despair breaks down the resistance of those who need to be persuaded. They are to be so shocked and numbed, so weakened and demoralized, so pessimistic of hope that they become amenable to anything that promises release from tension. That's why we bring in violence in the process, because it gets results, and it gets them fast, and it creates a major impression on people. Look at that passing of the so-called billion-dollar handout (laughs) through the U.S. Senate the other day. Look at the certain concern with the cities of uh, this country, a concern that was not there prior to violence. Concerned it was not there, as I said earlier, with volume upon volume of the states of black America. A concern that was not there as a result of Jesse Jackson running one campaign after another to bring those concerns before the American public and before the American government. Concerns that were not there as a result of marches and rallies and protests and all of the other acceptable and traditional approaches that we have used in this society. A president who was known for his vetoing of anything that had to do with the uplift of African people in America now his attention is focused for a moment. If he does not want violence to become a way of life for our getting his attention, then he should not wait to reward violence with his attention. The creation, then, of an atmosphere of despair speaks both to those in power and those out of power the ultimate and the most potent political economic weapons of the poor and the weak are social disruption. No business as usual. Violent, both violent and nonviolent, and terroristic violence. Generally the use of these weapons are utilized by the desperate, by those whose hopes and expectations have been inexplicably or shamefully dashed, those to whom reasonable and just promises have been made but have been revoked, reneged on, or broken without apparent good reasons or for apparently malicious reasons. This is why even at the time when a group of people appeared to be improving as some would remind us, now we have this black, big black middle class growing There is, things are much better than others. Other times, you are now engaging in this behavior. However, there are still promises which have remained unkept. There are still contracts being violated. And there is still the malicious movement of those in government against our people. And there are still the reversals of these so-called gains perpetrated by those in power. In such situations, the commitment to mob insurrectionary, violent reactionary activities seem to reflect natural and inevitable responses. Terror is a weapon or social instrumentality naturally suited to the struggles of peoples and groups without effective organized power bases. What other means do you have? I can see these snobbish people with their power and with their influence, with their false sense of moral superiority, trying to persuade the poor and the weak not to use the only weapon they have left. <laughs> Violence and disruption, hiding behind pieties and religious and moral throw It's a good thing that the poor see through it. (laughs) It's amazing that the poor and the weak wait so long to bring about change by the only means they have available to them. We cannot assume having their terror, revolts, and the like are always deliberately planned, deliberately instigated, or predictable events which eventuate into predictable outcomes. Many times they are apparently spontaneous, utterly without intention, and may abort or disappear without apparent reason. However, this view of seeing insurrections, of seeing revolts as being spontaneous, as being without intention, reflects a failure on the part of those who view them this way. Distinguish between immediate, precipitant causes of violence and preconditional and underlying. Had to make them rob and steal and destroy the Indians. The enslavement of black people. As I often said about Jimmy Swagger when he used to talk about that old time religion.
5: He used to
4: march across that stage with that Bible bumping up and down. Yes, talking about the religion of his great grandpas and how he wanted that religion. Thought back. Of course, I have to remind my people: you really don't want that religion thought back, because at the time they had that religion, they were hanging and lynching black people, enslaving black people. So I definitely don't want that old-time religion. And I'm a little weary about those traditional values you're talking about too, (laughs) because those are apparently the values that underlies the racism of this nation and that rationalizes white supremacy and that somehow lays the ideological foundations for the mistreatment of African people in America. I am not concerned, then, about the restoration of their so-called traditional values, but the creation of new values. In this book and in this, in this magazine by Thomas Byrne Edsel and Mary Edsel, they start out the article by stating race is no longer a straightforward, morally unambiguous force in American politics. Instead, considerations of race are now deeply embedded in the strategy and tactics of politics. In competing concepts, of the function and responsibility of government and in every voter's conceptual structure of moral and partisan identity. (laughs) We're at the very center and heart of how America defines itself. Race helps define the liberal and conservative ideology, shapes the presidential coalitions of the Democratic and Republican parties, provides a harsh new dimension to concern over taxes and crime, drives a wedge through alliances of the working classes and the poor, and gives both momentum and vitality to the drive to establish a national majority inclined by income and demography to support policies benefiting the affluent and upper middle class. In terms of policies, race has played a critical role in the creation of a political system that has tolerated, if not supported, the growth of the disparity between rich and poor over the past 15 years. Race-coded images and language changed the course of the 1980, 1984, and 1988 presidential elections and the 1990 elections for the governorships of California and Alabama, the U.S. Senate in North Carolina, and the post of Texas Secretary of Agriculture. The political role of race is subtle and complex, requiring listening to those whose views are deeply repellent to some and deeply resonant for others to debate over race policy has been skewed and distorted by a profound failure to listen. And so we see here then that blacks are the scapegoats of this society. African Americans are the means by which this society defines itself. As I say it again on black black violence, you see, that the whole of the white ego and the whole of the white self-image is built on its definition of who black people and African people are. That is why it is upset by criminalizing African people. Whenever you see a people insisting against all kinds of evidence on negating and scandalizing the personality of another person or another people, you recognize then that they're engaged in those acts to protect their own ego and that their ego structure is built on maintaining the scandalizing of their targets. And that if they did not have these targets of scandal, if they did not have these egos, these these people as scapegoats, their façade and their infrastructure would crumble and fall apart. They would come face to face with the madness and insanity that motivates their personalities and their systems. When blacks move out of our role as scapegoats and redefine ourselves in ways that cannot be denied by any people in the world, then white people will go crazy, and they will fall apart. And we said in Black on Black then that the so-called criminality of black people is an economic and political necessity for maintaining the system. It is not merely an accusation flowing from racial prejudice. Nor merely accusation flowing from racial hatred, as hatred has little to do with it. It is necessary to the very foundation of the system itself. That's why, at the center of it, even in the current politics of today, you will see. Now going to rescue you from your troubles. You'll look at many of the publications today talking about edge cities, new cities created by principally by whites that ring the inner cities. Cities that now whose governments are almost under direct control of these white suburbanites. Cities then that have influence in state governments in such a way that they can prevent taxation schemes that are meant to rescue the inner cities, that are meant to change the direction of the miseducation of our children, that are meant to relieve the problems of the inner cities. We have a situation then where whites have organized themselves in such a way that a politician who even talks about the rescue of the cities is literally damned for state office or for higher office. And now you see Clinton and other groups speaking to this suburban fringe. Is this fringe suffering? They tend to think that the black community implicitly or explicitly is not aware of what is going on. Let's look at some of these things, some of these preconditions. By 1991, the federal government's largest housing subsidy program was providing an average of $3,000 a year for each of 6 million wealthiest households in America while offering nothing to the 36 million Americans in poverty. Only one of every eight federal benefit dollars actually reaches Americans in poverty. There has been a wholesale rape and robbery of the poor and weak in this country. And yet this is the class that is supposedly now being rescued and is now supposedly uh, being uh, ministered into by those who run for office. From, 1981, from 1980 to 1991, in constant dollars, The average federal benefit received by households with incomes under $10,000 declined by 7%. An actual decrease in benefits from the government. But yet we get a lying and deceptive image that because of the fiscal difficulties in this country of those people on welfare, of the burden placed upon the government, and upon the treasury by the poor people and by inner-city people. And yet these people earning under 10000 have actually had their monies taken away and not added on to, while the rich and while the middle class have actually uh, spent at the government troughs. On average, households with incomes under $10,000, collected a total of $5,690 in benefits. On average, households with incomes over $100,000 collected $9,280 from the government. In other words, those making over $100,000 collect nearly twice as much from the government as those earning under 10 dollars You see, you hear whites in making these discussions and and talking about the state of this country and talking about the debt that this country is suffering from. And you can hear them talk about the deficit and the threat that this deficit holds for the health of this nation. And I want to warn you that this nation is in a very precarious state of
5: circumstances. And the precariousness of its state will be made
4: clear after the elections. But if you listen carefully, you can already feel the panic over the concerns of the the economic state of this country. They're in such a panic that they know they have to reduce the deficit of this nation if it is to survive and if it is going to be socially viable. In my series on power, I talk about one of the causes of black-on-black violence, other than the psychology that I referred to earlier, other than the social relations, has to do with the economic state of the black community. I try to emphasize that it's very important from a conceptual point of view to think in terms of a nation within a nation when it comes to analyzing black problems. I am not advocating that you buy the concept that we should have a nation within a nation. so don't give me a knee-jerk reaction right on. What I am saying is just thinking conceptually in terms of black people as a nation within a nation. I think when you use this concept, it will help you to see some things that perhaps you cannot see through the use of other concepts such as individualism and the other stuff that people lay on you. When you look at the black community and the African-American community in this country as a nation within a nation, It becomes almost immediately apparent as to why there's so much violence and social disorganization in the black community. I often use the Chinese Opium Wars to illustrate what I'm talking about, of how the British, in entering trade with the Chinese, were buying all of their tea from China, and China was buying nothing from the British. The British had nothing the Chinese wanted, and yet the British wanted that tea. They were hooked on a tea habit, and the Chinese demanded only silver and gold from the British, and that meant over time that the British balance of payments became unbalanced because the silver and gold was flowing into China, but nothing, no earnings were coming back from the Chinese and they were facing a dilemma. They recognized that this situation could not continue or else they could not maintain their social institutions and they could not maintain social order in their society and that their government could not maintain legitimacy and the people at some point would rise up against it in revolt and refuse to follow its dictates and refuse to pledge allegiance to it and destroy it. Because this is what happens to nations when they have negative flows of wealth. Because it takes wealth to maintain order. It takes wealth to maintain institutions. It takes wealth to maintain employment system. It takes wealth to create jobs. It takes wealth to educate children and so forth. And when that wealth is flowing out into the hands of other people, These institutions collapse. The discipline of the people collapse. The obedience and the habits of obedience collapse, and chaos begins to reign. And the only way governments can maintain power then under those circumstances is often to use martial law and strong martial means of maintaining population control. And that has serious limitations. And the British then recognized that we had to change the situation or else our very society will be destroyed. And what did they do then? They hooked the Chinese into an opium habit and started and addicted the Chinese. And then demanded of the Chinese once they got hooked, now you pay us for your opium in silver and gold. And that habit got to such a level that the balance was reversed and the flow went out of China to England. And when the Chinese tried to stop it, the English government, the old pusher that it is, yes, a
5: government based on drugs, the queen, the greatest
4: drug pusher the world has ever known, went in like any gangster on these streets out here to protect their monopoly to sell drugs to the Chinese and engaged in two wars to maintain the drug market that they had established. And yet you try to sit here and listen to these jokers with their moral piety trying to talk to us. A nation built upon the selling of drugs and the government coming in defense of the selling of drugs. But my point here is, of course, what happens when you get trade imbalances. And the Chinese recognize if we don't stop this stuff, our wealth is going to flow out to such a degree until we then will suffer social collapse. Now, when you look then at the African-American community, surrounded by non-African communities, plagued by economic parasites, coming into its midst, and taking its wealth and earnings right out, exploited by white and non-white alike, who rob it of its wealth and rob it of its resources. And who, even in its stupidity, tries to say, the answer to this is to increase the number of us with skills and education, only to have those with increased skills and education also what? Shipped out so that they can solve other people's problems and spend their earnings in other people's markets and therefore can't return neither their skills nor their wealth back to the original community. So then what do you have? A community, an African nation, with a tremendous trade deficit, with a tremendous trade imbalance, with a tremendous outflow of material resources and capital
5: and brains
4: and an increasing concentration then of people who are bereft of skills and resources and the like violence and social disorganization family and institutional disorganization becomes inevitable under those circumstances am I getting across to you because I don't want to hear you talking to me when I tell you that you've got to throw these Koreans out of this community and you've got to throw these Arabs out of this community and you've got to throw all the rest of these jokers out of this community. Come talk to me about some racial harmony and love and reverse racism. Hiding under Islam and some Christian ideology. Because you must recognize the hard, cold fact is you cannot educate your children. You cannot train them in the way they should go. You cannot give them appropriate recreational centers and other things they need without material wealth. And you can't do it by handing it over to other people. And it is not the result of hard feelings or racial hatred against any other people, it is not reverse racism. It is a matter of survival and protecting your own. I do not want to hear any pompous discussions about values, pompous discussion about how parents should teach their children values. Anybody who's lived in the ghettos as long as I have knows that you can teach values day in and day out and still lose your children. Because we live in a world and in a context where we are not the only ones that raise our children. We're not the only ones that that uh, influence our children. The middle class isn't better at raising children, and it isn't better at, at projecting values. It is only better at buying neighborhoods. Because when you buy your house, you buy your neighborhood. You buy your school. You buy a set of neighbor, neighbors. Can you buy a social and political context? That is not just the buying of a house. You buy a totality. And you buy a totality that supports your values. Values are, are little or no account when they are not reinforced by a social system and rewarded by concrete uh, outcomes. How long can one hold on to a value when one is starved with holding on to that value, when one is punished and rejected, even when one demonstrates that one is held on to that value? When then we demand that our children exhibit certain values, then we should be in the position to reward their exhibition of those values, or else we will look as hypocrites and fools, and we will give them empty entire sayings that, in the long run, works against their interests and not for their interest. half or at least four hundred billion of all entitlements went to households with incomes over thirty thousand dollars. You hear what I'm saying? Four hundred billion dollars went to people. Who earned over thirty thousand dollars. Talk about your pri- your individual pride, your individual drive, and how you got your little house as a result of individual drive, even though you ran down to the federal housing authority to back your mortgage and to back your down payments, even though you have engaged the federal government to ensure. Your mortgage. you are going to talk about how independent you were in getting your house. How can the poor then go to the federal government and get it to insure their rent and pay out rent and other costs? Now, now, you got a government behind you even when you think you're buying that house all by yourself, even when you think you scraped and saved and put that down payment on it. When you sit up there and deduct those credits, who do you think stands in and pays the tax? You don't pay. When you write so proudly the deduction that you deserve as a homeowner, those of us who pay rent and other things cannot make the same claim. Do you think that you're being independent? No, you are not. You are feeding from the federal trust. And you're feeding at the rate of billions from the federal draw. And therefore, those, one half of, of all of those entitlements, $400 billion, with the households, 30,000 and above, one quarter or at least $200 billion, approaching almost the whole spend earning power of black people, with the households with incomes over $50,000. Who is on welfare? Who is dependent? And that's why when you hear them on T V talking about this federal deficit, they'll just mention the word entitlement. Oh well, we have gotta get rid of these entitlement programs. And of course people read into them oh, they're talking about those welfare people. You see, they're talking about those uh, Section 8 folk or something like that, and, and you ask yourself, why do they never discuss what they mean by entitlement? And why is it that despite the tremendous deficit this, this country is facing, a deficit that threatens its very viability, those men in the U.S. Senate and House cannot pass bills saving that deficit up? They are so gutless and afraid to pass bills and come to terms with a deficit that is threatening the very uh, social foundations of this nation that they are trying to create a constitutional amendment so that they would be forced to balance the budget against their will because they know that they can never develop the will to do it. That's the way New York State does it, you know, just written it because you've got to balance it, period. There's no way around it because the federal government doesn't have this, you see. And so that is what the Senate is saying, those people in the Senate saying, we can't get the gut despite the threat, to see that this doggone deficit is taken care of. Why can't they get the
5: guts?
4: Is it that they're afraid of welfare, people? They're afraid of welfare, right? they're afraid of the main welfare people, those suburbanites that they're talking about, those $50,000-a-year people, those $100,000-a-year people who are now getting billions of dollars from the federal trust. That's why they can't pass it, because those are the people with the lobby. Those are the people who, with the organizations, Those are the people with the power those are the people who can diselect folks. So consequently, then, they are almost ready to see this country collapse on itself. But you know in the end who's going to be blamed for it because they keep just using the word entitlement. And the mass population will read entitlement as people are out there. We're going to have, then, an attack, a genocidal attack on black folks. What are the long-term preconditions, then, to set up the L.A. riots besides the ones I mentioned? An interesting piece in, this, in the uh, Village Voice called Herbicides. I Daniel Lazar points some of them out. Subsidized private housing. You must know, you see, that the government, you notice whenever the government tries to read what they call leading economic indicators as to whether the economy is is moving up or whether the recovery is over, what is the first thing they look at? Housing. Housing and housing starts. Because if you if you stop for a minute, you recognize the building of houses is attached to so many other industries. You understand? When you buy when you buy a house, you buy furniture, you buy rugs, you buy carpenters, plumbers, you're feeding the brick industry, you're feeding the type industry, you're feeding the child-making industry, the insurance people, the, you know, there are tons of people that ride on housing. That's why the government looks at it as a crucial factor in indicating recovery now, And consequently, the government is not going to take a hand-off approach to housing and to the buying and purchasing of housing and the building of housing. No, by no means, because the housing and the building of housing is crucial to the economic system. So consequently, it will create perks and other kinds of things to try to generate the increased development of housing and building of housing and buying of housing. And therefore, even though the middle class may deceive itself into thinking it's due to its hard work and its value that it gets these houses, these houses are subsidized, subsidized by the U.S. taxpayer by the poor, and by other citizens in this country. But you see, again, the rich call their their welfare subsidies, tax credits, and all these other names, and they call ours welfare. Each year, the federal government does out an estimated $70 billion or more in annual tax subsidies to bolster an ostensibly private suburban home market. By comparison, the federal government allocated just $1.8 billion last year for public housing and $150 million for uh, uh, subsidizing programs for the homeless. $150 million compared to what? Two billions, billion, $70 billion subsidizing suburban housing. $150 million for the homeless, $1.8 billion for public housing. The racist backlash engendered by the black migration waves of the 1930s, 40s, and 50s vastly accelerated a process already underway, that is, urban decline. So whites were getting out. And that's what has happened. Whites have just left the cities, mainly to get away from blacks. But this was not done innocently. This was assisted by the government itself. This was assisted by a government that took your savings in these banks, the savings that they denied to you called redlining, a government that is a, 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 a situation that we saw last week that the higher the earnings of black people, the greater the rejection rate for a loans, Okay? A system that takes the billions of dollars earned by black folks, and I haven't even talked about it, created by black folks. What do we say? If Tyson earns 20, billion, 20 million, he must be generating what? 200 million. Where's the, where's the other eighty? One 180 million going? Find black people getting that. If Michael Jackson earns so many millions of dollars, that he must be creating what? A billion. Where, where, where is the other part of the billion going? Why aren't black people getting this other part? We, if we earn over 300 billions of dollars, then we must be generating well over a trillion or more dollars. Where is that money going? And how is that money used? In what bank is it being deposited? But we want to look at that. Let's look at what we put in and recognize that the very money we put into these banks across this country are the very monies that were loaned out to pave the roads to suburbia. The very monies that were loaned out to move factories out of this nation and to other segments of this population so that these companies would not have to deal with unionized labor and so forth. In other words, the oppressed to a great extent finance their own oppression. Drugs. We don't have to talk about deindustrialization. America has been on a retreat from manufacturing since the 1970s, with devastating consequences. Between 1958 and 1975, New York City lost nearly 50 percent of its manufacturing job base. Then you want to compare black children and black people with the other generation, when the other generation. When they dropped out of school in the eighth grade or sixth grade, could walk into a plant, could walk into some kind of industry, and get a decent paying job. Now that, that, that net has been swept completely out from under black people. Really, 50% of manufacturing jobs went out between 58 and 75. Under the Koch administration, they lost an additional 37%. The thing about this deindustrialization is that it is deliberate. It was not accidental. It was deliberately and consciously planned. You had a bunch of foolish people who thought that all this country needed to do was to sell information and to process information, to ship its factories out to other places and and, and work with information only, And and thought that Wall Street and that gambling joint down there would be the basis for maintaining the economy of New York City. Foolishness, pure foolishness. A nation that literally does not tax industries and so forth owned by its own citizens once they move off the border of America. That literally then encourages and subsidizes the actual movement of industry out of the country. And in turn, has a very liberal tax policy for foreign countries that own businesses in America. And that's why the Japanese call them children. Yeah, boys, foolish. White males are seen by them as a a bunch of foolish little boys. These people will be eaten alive by the Asians because they're so caught up in their racism and arrogance, they cannot see what is going on. We'll sum it up here then by saying then that there were many preconditions prior to the L.A. disturbances and
3: other disturbances,
4: and these were the history of the act that we saw occur there. On top, though, of these conditions, what I call the state of mind. You know, whites, as I've indicated, think that they are nonviolent people. They will measure their levels of physical violence with like levels of physical violence. As I said, they run a statistical game. And they'll often get away with it because people associate violence with physical interaction. So we talk about violence, and automatically we think of murder, killing, you know, physical attacks, and and so forth. But you see, when you're in power, there's another form of violence available to you. And when you're in power, you can call it by other names because power gives you the right also to define. And the power to define manipulates people's consciousness and blinds them to reality. And therefore, the ruling classes can appear to be even effeminate, nonviolent types, wouldn't hurt a fly, but are yet the most violent people around, because we cannot discount psychic violence, the violence against a person's mind, the violence against a person's perception of who he or she is, the violence that occurs from depriving a person of wholesome and healthy experiences that motivate and that provide the foundations for their healthy mental, social development as persons, violence that motivates self-hatred, violence that motivates alienation from the self and from the other. Violence that destroys initiatives, that destroys the systems, that destroys the capacity of community to organize itself socially and politically to act in its own interests. Violence that motivates many people then to engage in the self destructive acts of drug addiction and other addictive forms of behaviour. This is the most utter and the deepest violence of all. For often people can survive and respond and bounce back from physical violence. But the violence done to minds from the very first days of birth and from the very first years of life are extremely difficult to change. As a psychologist, as a person engaged in therapy, you come right up against the fact that it's usually those first two, three, four, five years that are still working in a distorted personality. Those first three, four, five years that have driven a person insane, maybe neurotic and maladjusted. And sometimes it takes almost another three or four or five years to even begin to get them on the path to healthy adjustment and behavior. A type of violence that breeds violence in itself and makes it appear that violence is self-initiated. And it's a type of violence, you see, that whites have visited on blacks so that they can stand back and say, we are not hurting them, we are not killing them, they are doing it to themselves because they've hidden the foundational violence, and that is the violence against the black consciousness and the black mind in such a way then that it expresses itself as black on black violence. This, it's the violence that comes, as we talked about earlier, from projecting black people as a major problem in this society. And this type of violence creates a sense of vulnerability and To ignore power, to ignore its development, to ignore its appropriate use is to ignore life itself and ultimately invite death and destruction. We live in a system here where black people have been made to think that power is a dirty word, and that to discuss power and to talk about its cultivation is a sinful activity. Well, you must get over the propaganda. Has created this attitude towards you. We will end it here then. Recognize that the LA situations were heights of revolutionary activities, and possibly pointed to revolutionary change. Not all revolutionary acts or acts of re- revolt are successful enforcing policy changes, much less in overthrowing government. Mass uprisings not aimed at revolutionary change, which have little or no ideological content, no plans for general reforms, are subject to failure. Revolts are easy targets. Such revolts, that is, revolts without, ideolo- without ideological foundation, without ultimate
7: plans and purposes,
4: such revolts are easy targets for existing power structures the mass revolt without a social program, with limited leadership capabilities. We are a community here that somehow just expect leaders to sprout up out of the ground instead of training them and expect people to do the right thing instead of creating institutions to train and bring about the people to do the right thing and preparing them for doing the right thing. Revolts generated by people who take this approach to power will produce then leadership, limited leadership, leadership with limited tech capabilities, cannot exploit its initial victories won in the first wild upsurge of hatred and resentment, or whatever you call it. You cannot what? Capitalize. I saw some people rejoicing in the clown heights for services thinking at last the millennium had arrived, that out of this would grow a revolutionary change in New York. I'm sorry I had to object because I did not see the ideological foundations that would become vehicles for that change. Victorious in the battlefield, its participants can only appeal to the ruling regime. That things right, to revert to the old just ways of doing things. We see that again. After the riot is over, we used the riots to plead. Please, we told you we
3: were in trouble. We told you you wouldn't listen to us. <laughs> Those kind of riots
4: will not go anywhere, and hoping for more of them and talking about deferment will not take us anywhere unless they are ideologically rationalized and founded. In the circumstances of these riots, or these so-called revolts, without ideological foundation, without a revolutionary rationale, without revolutionary goals, and by this I mean without the intent to reverse the power relationship in the society, to remove the power from the hands of white folk and white males and place their power in the hands of black males and in the hands of black people this is what I'm talking about when I talk about revolution a change in power relations but that change has to be rationalized and it's not motivated by just spontaneous reactions or reactionary behavior by reactionary protests, and then by trotting out a bunch of leaders who are going to feed on that and try to, to provoke guilt and, and this kind of stuff in the ruling establishment and try to get the ruling establishment now to minister and to undertake the hard task of rationalizing our relationship to those in power with sound ideologies and sound rationale. And, and and reorganizing our relationships one to the other because ultimately power is a system. Power results from the alignment of people relative one to the other. Power then involves types of relationships people have one toward the other. Ultimately then, If we are to truly revolutionize this country and truly protect ourselves as a people, we must truly revolutionize our self-concept, our self-perception, revolutionize our history, and be committed to revolutionizing our future. Thank you very much.
2: Dr. Amos Wilson. Okay. We are going to have a question and answer period, but let's take a little break to kind of stretch and get a little liquid refreshments and some delicious food outside. And um, there's a photo exhibit upstairs in the art gallery that's open. And um, do get your sweet roots over here. And um, we have some buttons and T-shirts also.
3: Black,
5: ten,
4: yeah, very nice. I guess they must have uh, left it out of his room. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, Okay.
3: Ready?
1: Okay.
6: Could you explain to us the effects of propaganda on African American people
5: mm-hmm. that
6: deliberately use propaganda, you know, that helps to create the false state of consciousness that many of our people are in. That one of the tools of power that are used of propaganda. Mm-hmm. Okay.
4: Well, of course, that's a, a very broad question, a very broad issue, and uh, one of the major things that I referred to earlier in terms of the psychic violence is, of course, uh, refers to propaganda. Propaganda relating to the concept to propagate, to propagate a particular view of the world, a particular view of reality, to try to create a particular consciousness, mainly through the manipulation of information and through the, a biased interpretation of information. Propaganda, while it can, may be lies and may be untruth, can even be based on truth, but truth are uh, projected in such a way or interpreted in such a way that it, in effect, deceives the individual. The main thing, of course, is to, to control or influence the consciousness of the individual and the behavior of an individual that's favorable or compatible with the intentions of the propagandist. And certainly the experience, our experience here in America has been a situation infused With propaganda, by propaganda, the whole uh, slandering of African history and culture, uh, of course, is a propaganda campaign that started from the very beginning, even prior to enslavement, that continues up to this day. The inflation of European history and culture, the inflation of uh, the European pretenses to be civilized, of course, engage uh, propaganda. I have argued to a great extent that the European being a minority in this world maintains his power through deception, that that is the key to maintaining uh, his power, that is deceiving the people and reversing their mentality and reversing their minds. Of course, propaganda becomes even more effective when the propagandist is successful in preventing uh, contradictory information from being spread, it is, 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 uh, has the advantage of the control of media and has the advantage of uh, being in control of information and of being
5: perceived
4: as an authority. And as the validator of truth and the final word, and all of these things we see in this country and even in the on the globe period has been have been pretty much accomplished by the European. Now, the thing that we are going to concern ourselves with in our power course, of course, is not to look at ourselves so much as the victims of propaganda. We are going to look at propaganda in terms of how we are going to use it against others, how we can develop propaganda and how we can propagate our ideologies and our perceptions as a people, how we then get our information to successfully contradict information that is creating the kind of consciousness that we are battling today. We are going to look at the propaganda instruments that are made available to us. There are quite a few made available to us that we are not using uh, nearly as much as we should, as people. Of course, the inclusion of things like the the changing of the so-called curriculum, the the uh, the establishment of the African-centered curriculum uh, is what we call good propaganda. It is what I call Uh, psycho-inoculation. If we say that to a good extent our behavior is rooted in self-alienation, being separated from ourselves, not knowing ourselves, or having negative attitudes toward ourselves as a result of another group projecting negative information, hiding information, uh, biasing information, then, of course, one of the obvious answers This kind of attack is for us to have sound and solid information about ourselves, a sound and solid knowledge, of the history of ourselves and the history of our enemies, and to educate ourselves and our children in terms of how propaganda works, how it is used against us, how the media seeks to manipulate us and these kind of things so that despite their propaganda campaigns, we can resist them successfully to reduce the authoritative stature of the white man, we must raise authorities and authority figures within our own communities so that the final words will rest within the community and not outside the community itself. We see the good use of propaganda in the Nation of Islam of Elijah Muhammad and other groups, and we need to study them from that point of view Golly people of this nature. So, we have plenty of good examples of the effective use of propaganda and how it can be used for our interests instead of against our interests. I think I'll
0: have to hold this. Mm -hmm. Uh, First, I'd like to thank you for being so clear on, on your topics. You're able to bring things to light so that we can break it down and see it and we can relate it to our lives and our. as well as other informative lecturers. My question for you is, um, the only thing that I was not too clear on was when you mentioned that uh, if we purchase our own homes, Mm
5: -hmm. that
0: it helps to aid the federal government. Is there perhaps an alternative? Because what I'm looking at is, you had also mentioned in the same token that it is good on the other hand to have your own homes Mm -hmm. because in that case you're able to build a community and make it your own. Mm -hmm. Um, So perhaps you can break it down from a little bit.
4: Yeah, I'm not not advocating not buying a home, of course. What I was trying to get across, the idea I was trying to get across there was to get people to understand that when they buy homes, you know, and buy suburban homes and other things, I wanted to disabuse them of the idea that they are not getting government aid you see what I, mean? I have nothing against black folks getting money from the U.S. government. By any stretch of The the problem is often when you look at the history of housing and you look at uh, the history of support for the buying of houses, the very federal government that has subsidized housing by other people have agreed to discriminative statutes and approaches that has prevented black people from... Uh, receiving these entitlements. And so more what I'm looking at here then is uh, is that we recognize that the government is supporting to a very great degree far more than poor people so that we recognize that blaming poor people and seeing cutting people off welfare and those kind of things as a way of solving problems is not the problem. That if America is going to solve its problems, and I'm not really concerned about it in this, in this sense, that what it requires is that people look at their, look in their own front yards and see to what extent they themselves are also a part of the problem, and confront face to face with the fact, uh, with, the, with the issue, as to whether they're ready to engage in self-sacrifice before they require the sacrifice of others, and so forth and that we as like black people also come to get a deeper understanding of how this government manipulates uh, the housing market so we can take advantage of it in one level, but also so that we won't be duped into self-condemnation and in condemning each other uh, because we are ignorant of how uh, the government is, is used and how that might class, especially uses the federal government. It's designed also to get some black middle classes, some, with bourgeois attitudes uh, such as the Thomases who think that they've made it in the world without U.S. government support and who do not realize often that in a, on a whole, they probably receive more welfare than the people they, they condemn. So well, then
0: perhaps another question I might have for you. Is, is there perhaps an alternative that we can do in order to not only help ourselves, in order to build up our communities and our own personal selves, but as well as to continue to help Mm -hmm. those who are in need, aside from, you know, the regular things that you do in in terms of just, aside from donating to the church, but rather Mm -hmm. come to an association such as this, where you can Mm -hmm. give money, or just in turn give back to the the community, period. Is there perhaps something else that we can do Mm -hmm. um, in terms of building our own communities collectively without the government,
4: Per se, I don't, yes. I don't really know. And I, I, I have no hesitation for using the government because, as I remind people, it's our money, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? If you're paying taxes and we've given all of this free labor and all the other kind of stuff, uh, we shouldn't hesitate to to get the money, okay? Okay. Because I know some people, you know, they want to back up. Of course, you don't want those to become prisoners the government and you don't want the money in such a way that the government dictates policy. I can understand that. And that, of course, then implies that we become very uh, sharp at manipulating the government and we should learn from others how the government, for instance, from Ross Perot, yeah. you know, how do you manipulate it and how do you work it to your own advantage? Uh, let's look at this electoral system. How do we get our own people in and how do we then use our own people to 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 get that government money to work for our interests of people? We must get a sound knowledge, a thorough knowledge of how this government operates and works so that we can manipulate it to our own advantage. That's, that's a number one. And then the other thing, of course, is, and this is what we'll be doing, look at how we have in the past uh, financed our entrepreneurial activities. I just did a, my second lecture on the power thing last week, on our power conference coming up last week. And one of the things I looked at, a very interesting book by a person named uh Black this uh-huh. IQ test as a very rough measure of uh, intellectual growth it is not It does not define intelligence such as pure innate intelligence, but more as an indicator of learning experiences that an individual has had. Uh, obviously, the tests are culturally biased. However, because they're culturally biased, I don't necessarily condemn them because of my belief that we as African people can pass these intelligence, so-called IQ tests, as well as and better than whites, and that we can pass them as a way of learning what they need to know and a way of learning what we need to know so that we can finally defeat them. I like the way the Japanese approach to it has been in the sense they have not had to necessarily throw away their culture. While maintaining their culture, they have beaten the Europeans at their own test. And what I'm saying is that we can be African-centered, African-based, and beat these people even at that test. We don't have to be afraid of them using the test, and we don't have to avoid the test. In fact, we tell them to bring it on and whip them with it. So what I'm trying to say, essentially, in writing my book, is raise your children, match their growth and development with appropriate experience. You won't have to worry about an IQ test. You know what I'm saying? They will pass those tests and beat the white kids at those tests, and therefore they can't be used. Against you in a a negative sort of way. So center your life around organizing and building up and maintaining the genius of your children. From that point on, the test is no problem. In fact, it can become a positive instrument for you. Sure.
6: Hotel, Brother Woods. Hotel. I watching the news and whatnot. And I noticed that uh, the, the, the violence that occurred with the Hasidic Jews and the African-American community community last summer and uh, a lot of violence that started off throughout a, a number of American cities when the Rodney King verdict came through. and And I was thinking about what you said about how they could, European could stop this and I was wondering would it at all be possible for the European to create certain conditions in a number of African communities in America that would incite such violent mm-hmm. reactions of that magnitude and then declare martial law
5: mm-hmm.
6: to, uh, to squash that and then their rationale to declare martial laws the violence that transpired mm-hmm. and then just you know a sure. genocide with pistols and I was wondering uh, how could that strategy be um, prevented mm-hmm. or How could we inoculate ourselves against some kind of strategy like that? Mm-hmm.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, well, of course, when I talked about earlier about
7: um, plans,
4: ideological rationales and so forth, all of this is implied, you see. Uh, the thing that I emphasize a good deal, man, trying to get across to our people of trying to push a revolutionary program and deal with counter-revolution is, of course, always the asking of the what if question, you know, and, and developing as many contingencies and fallbacks as possible to think the unthinkable, you see, and prepare for those possibilities. And no matter how far-fetched it may seem to always think them through and try to set up a program uh, in reference to them, certainly that is a possibility. And, of course, this kind of thing has been used in some instances before in terms of what we call the agent provocateur, where uh, a person is planted within a group and their purpose is to deliberately provoke that group into some kind of action so that the group could be arrested or, or uh, crushed by the police. And, of course, while I cannot give those de- cannot give any great details about this, considering this as a, a strong possibility within any group that you're a part of, particularly if you are in a, a revolutionary kind of group, of course, then should motivate you to, to try to establish the kind of internal security, the kind of internal organization to limit damage should this kind of agent be present in the uh, group itself to, of course, to, to try as much as possible to know the people that you have in your organization and uh, use various other tactics that you may have to research in that's in the literature about guarding oneself against agents placed uh, within groups. Possibility, and of course, it's implied in Black on Black that the criminalization of the Black community to a good extent is in part a rationale to set up a prior move, uh, to set up a later movement against that Black community. You, this means, too, in addition to trying to screen the people who join you and trying, in some instances, to resist, to uh, reduce the amount of contact between the members of the organization. So, in a way, if one cell ever gets caught, it doesn't destroy the whole unit. In addition to this, of course, it means strong training and strong indoctrination, and the kind of indoctrination that tests the metal of people and demand you know, tests their loyalty, and it requires discipline, and it requires leaders who can maintain discipline within their group and who can establish some kind of discipline and control of communities and neighborhoods. It requires the kind of coalitions, you see, that don't let neighborhoods and communities and the kind of relationships that don't let neighborhoods and communities get out of control simply because there's something that's strong there. This This is what we talk about when we talk about the study of power, and it's this kind of study that we're gonna engage in in the fall to deal with just those kind of questions so that we will not be reactionary, but we will be proactive
7: as a people. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. I appreciate the answer to bring you, Dr. Wilson, to Thank our uh, neighborhood. Uh, my question is uh, um, how we uh, turn uh, modern-day technology, like in computers and uh video mm-hmm. to our advantage. Um mm-hmm. uh, education. Um one recent uh example is that uh Sister Soldier uh, played Slightly Back in effect.
5: Mm-hmm.
7: I think that was a very um positive example of it. How uh, technology can be used yeah. uh for us instead of against us. Like mm-hmm. The T V sets being used against us every day. The uh, I remember and I use the example sometimes of of
4: the episode I saw in uh, the TV series Kung Fu, you know, and I talked about uh, that scene where he was facing a man who had two pistols, two bandoleros, two knives, two rifles, you know, a lot of this kind of stuff. And, of course, he was somewhat, he was unarmed as usual, and he made the statement, your strength is your weakness, you see. But all of that, that stuff is going to really be the cause of your problems. You've got too much of it. And by the time you try to deal with it, you're going to be done in. And when we, in, in, in the, it's, we're in a similar situation, you see, with this country and with the technology in this country, you see. It's very strength. It's also its Achilles' heel. It's very weakness. And we have to look at it from that point of view. How can it be used against and the very fact that that is a delicate network that, as you have seen, easily sabotaged where the society becomes dependent upon it. And in a way, while it adds speed and efficiency, it is also delicately balanced, you see. And, of course, it makes it vulnerable in many ways. But on the other level, I had... Uh, a mailing, order, a mail order book, a mailing list book that listed the that had available to it a list for something like six million black families. That means that through the purchase of that list, you could have direct access to these families. You know what I mean? And now, and of course, that's the weakness of it. They're selling lists. We take, we take those lists. The Republican Party was very effective. One of the reasons why it's been effective, very effective is because it has this guy named Biggery, who whose major power is the, the mailing out of letters, of getting that mailing list, sending those letters to millions of people overnight. And this is the technology, then, that we have not used. That means that we have a very direct route until, I guess, they close the post office. <laughs> but uh, a very direct route of what? Of communicating with families that can go around TV and other kinds of things, Then literature can can start movements and even hide the leaders of the movement behind very interesting information. Of course, they have distribution points for the videotapes, audio tapes, and all of the other kinds of things. That we that this technology makes possible for us. That computer, of course, can list all of those names and what? Send them out on the letters, put the letters out, run through a machine that folds them, stamps them, the whole thing (laughs) In other words, there's a technology available to us that is of enormous power. One of the things that I will discuss in the Power Series, you see, is for us to look at what I call the tremendous resources we have available to us as African people in this country, the tremendous databases that just are laying in wait for us to use. People like yourself, the knowledge of computers, the knowledge of of information storage, retrieval, and so forth, then become part of associations and organizations, computer network uh, systems, electronic mail systems, so that uh, any kind of information that needs to be spread across this country can be spread across by any number of means, rapidly, an organization set up. If you combine this rapid communication with people who have been appropriately trained, you see, and and are, are located across the nation, so and have similar values, perspectives, and ideas, then i not going to talk too much about it, but you, know, you, have, you have bases, you have foundations. And uh, we just have to study the technology, and we have to make up our mind if we're going to use it for us. You know, I have one
7: point that is uh, mm-hmm. even while we speak, uh, they are trying to pass laws to prevent that very same thing. Of course. And the beautiful part about it is we know they're doing
4: it. <laughs> Right. You see, I often tell our people, you know, when we start talking about these things, well, if you do that thing, they're going to do this. Well, that gives you an advantage. You know what they're going to do. You see, and this is the advantage any soldier wants, is to anticipate the reaction of his enemy. And that means, and this is why another part of training for power. You see? And, and, and then to express that intentionality through relationship with children and through education because it is intentionality that really determines the quality of learning, that serves as a motivational base for learning, that term, determines the nature of human relations and all of these things. So it's very important that our parents not only get a knowledge of these children and their, their uh, stages of development, but that we have real political economic intentions for them and and apply those through our interactions with the children. This intentionality goes into your next uh, issue there, you see. And that is answering the question we, we raised earlier. What kind of problems do we have And what kind of children do we need to solve those problems? And what kind of experiences should they be exposed to, you see? And then defining the content of the curriculum and the type of teaching method, the time systems and the other systems in line with creating these kinds of uh, individuals, persons, and group organizations. Providing them with a secure environment and an orderly environment so that learning can take place and so that they can have models for maintaining self-discipline and self-control becomes a key of key importance there. Providing them with uh, a sound knowledge of what their task is and what the future demands of their world will be on them and what kind of skills and social relationships they must develop in order to have to, to uh, constantly deal with those demands. Training them in cooperation skills, training them morally so that they can have a loyalty, one to the other, and things like this, then we'll prepare them both generally and specifically in a way that they can truly take power in the future world. With The sizes of our population that's African people and with the kind of wealth that we have naturally mm-hmm. and so forth, we then really should have no fear or shame in terms of seeing the wielding of real power as one of our major goals and being one of the wealthiest and most powerful people on this globe as being, being one of our goals. Yeah, hmm. That,
1: um, that if, if we can't, that probably has to come from, from the parents. That in silly that vision that the children can take power or are entitled to take power. Uh, yes. Yeah. To a degree, even though
4: it's also going to have to be supported by and come from other institutions as well. Um, I'm a little hesitant about the parents, not that i like the confidence in parents, but, of course, you know some of our parents, often being young and some having to deal with their own uh, unpleasant experiences and other kinds of things in life, Uh, sometimes it's difficult for them to get the energy and the concentration and other kinds of things to really focus on the children. And so consequently, it means that we had to support and develop institutions, uh, extra-parental institutions that really embark on the training of parents and children. And of course, this is very much in line with our African tradition, anyway, to begin with. If we again, when we look at the concept, of, say, of manhood training an African tradition, that really did not necessitate the chronic presence of a father in the home. In fact, it did not make the training of the male child a responsibility of the biological father to begin with, you see. It made the training of males a responsibility of the males in the community itself, you see. And you can see the advantage of that kind of system uh, in this kind of situation here very much so, which is one of the reasons why we are pushing the schools for the black males, we're pushing the manhood training we are now trying to organize those conscious males uh, into form institutions, organizations, so that uh, the responsibility for training our young men, and of course similar organization among women, can become a community responsibility. A part of that, though, too, will be as we train the children, we will train the parents, and we will train the children to be parents. You see. So in the future, as we train them, we can then rely on the parents more heavily to create the kind of children that we, we want and need. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Good evening, Dr. Wilkins.
8: Good evening. Dr. Um, I wanted to ask, I think, two questions, I want to touch on those. I want you to touch on those topics. One, uh, many of us may be old enough to remember some of the Walt Disney movies. Mm-hmm. Remember the ones where they were, you know, they were doing all kinds of experiments, and they dealt with the one where they had the monkey, and they were dealing with the sleep teaching technique,
5: mm-hmm. where
8: they they had the uh, headphones on oh, the Oh, this monkey. was a movie, not right, a cartoon. This country. was a movie. Okay, right, no, it was a the movie. They so used to have these crazy of
4: movies. Go
8: ahead. Right, for now. Yeah. And this one, they had the monkey, mm-hmm. and they were trying to teach the monkey to do certain things. Mm-hmm. So one of this, this this kid, this young young guy, had developed a sleep teaching technique where. Mm-hmm he had a tape recorder, he had headphones, and when the monkey went to sleep Mm -hmm. at night, he would play whatever it is, the information that he wanted the monkey to deal with. And so in the morning, he would, you know, this would go over and over. Mm -hmm. And I I don't know if it would be considered to be subliminal because you Mm -hmm. wouldn't really be conscious in terms of
5: sleep. Mm -hmm. But
8: at the same time, the information would be entering into the subconscious, right, right, while you were sleeping. So the monkey Mm -hmm. would get up and they would test the monkey on the information, mm-hmm. and the monkey will have assimilated this information. Mm-hmm. I want you maybe to speak on the importance of maybe us in our homes, mm-hmm. right, applying some measure of subliminal seduction with mm-hmm. our children, because sometimes the only time we have control over certain certain aspects of the environment, even within our home, mm-hmm. is at the time when everybody sleeps, right? Okay. <laughs> another, <laughs> okay. okay. And um, another thing, Another thing also is um, the idea of, let's say, for example, for we as a people, we have not been controlling our economics, Mm -hmm. yet we've been generating it. That means that somebody else has been controlling it. Mm -hmm. That means that someone has written into their budget Mm
5: -hmm. and
8: into their activities and expenditures uh, counting our money also. So now at the point where we wake up, uh, Mm -hmm. just before we wake up, this person is used to having a couple of several extra billion dollars to do it as they will. And since they know that we're not conscious of certain qualities Mm -hmm. in terms of life, because we're not conscious of ourselves, Mm
5: -hmm. they know
8: that they can say, all right, even though they provided this amount of money into the budget, they're not conscious of quality, so we can give them this quality, and they'll be satisfied because they haven't had for such a long time, Mm -hmm. and they'll be glad. Mm -hmm. Now we start to wake up, and um, we say, all right, you've been dealing with our money and We we thank you for that, Mm
5: -hmm. Uh,
8: but uh, we're ready to control our own now. So now this sizable chunk of the budget now comes from out of their control into our control. But that sizable chunk of the budget was what allowed them to be the superpower and enjoy the luxury that they've been enjoying. Mm -hmm. And since they're conditioned to think at this point not only that that they were handling for us, they're conditioned Mm -hmm. now to think, that this is the norm and that they deserve to deal with it this way and that for them not to be able to control that money, um, there's something wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This means that uh, I'm bringing around to the question of the idea of developing some type of paramilitary force in terms of uh, when we began to uh, develop our own industry, we're now taking the money out of the pockets of all the Europeans that come around and do the contracting and Mm -hmm. various things in our community and take the money out. Yeah. now instead of ninety seven instead of ninety three percent of the money going out ninety three percent is staying in and maybe seven percent is going out mm-hmm. so now they come around and say, "Well, hey, you guys are getting kind of big now mm-hmm. and you're encroaching into our area in terms of business and and services, we think that because it's been this way all the time, we think that we deserve our share after all, we were taking care of things for a while, <laughs> and I think uh maybe we need to speak to that also
4: okay,
8: yeah, <laughs> all of those uh
4: Issues, of course, that you raise will be uh, thoroughly worked through in our workshops on the uh, power thing, because, of course, one of the things we will discuss is uh, the power of the black consumer dollar, turning that consumer money around and, and, and recognizing the fact that others will often respond hostily to our turning around. I've often said you hear people talk about uh, uh, reacting, say, in the Korean situation, saying, well, why don't you get your own stores and so forth? And, of course, you have to remind them, of course, you're really kidding about that because your livelihood depends on us not owning the shops. And, of course, we – but that also makes us recognize, as you uh, put it so well, that when we do make this move, we are going to be – scandalized as reverse racist and all of the other kinds of, of things. And this is why, of course, we have to develop the psychological uh, foundations and outlooks that would permit us to withstand this kind of uh, situation. And we will have to develop physical means at times, if necessary, of protecting our uh, interests, and this is not uncommon in America at all. I mean, you look at certain monopolies in this city and other places, and you again read the history of them, you will see often they were physically taken from other groups, and they are physically uh, protected. It's been now a hesitancy as a people to enter into this level of protection of industry and taking industry. That is one of the reasons why we are in the condition uh, we are in as people. The other possibility that we will consider is the possibility of intertwining ourselves so deeply in this system and getting wrapped into it and looking at that's one of the reason why we want to study its economic weaknesses, you see, and study its the means by which you can get into it and see if it's possible for us to get into it in such depth and with such thoroughness that uh, these people cannot attack you other than they just tear the whole damn thing apart. <laughs> you see. So before we sort of get to the physical force of other things, we really want to explore other possibilities. And I think wow. there are possibilities for us to take advantage of this system uh, in such a way that, in a sense, a movement against us is the time the whites are saying, well, we just want to commit hair to carry with the whole thing and end it. And so let's look at it in, in, in that light and in the uh, in the other light. Consumer dollars are very powerful. Uh, you A consumer dollar can make people dependent on you. Consumption is not only a state of dependency. It can create dependency, you see, Japan has no natural resources whatsoever, okay? And in many ways, its military power, you know, may not be as strong as the United States, perhaps Russia or maybe some other groups. But it's interesting to look at Japan's manipulation of its suppliers by making its suppliers compete one against the other. You see. Getting a number of suppliers for the same uh, resources, they in effect control. I don't have a set of opinions or uh attitudes really towards fact uh and I guess because of my own preoccupations, I really haven't paid too much the mind to debates around uh Malcolm X okay and that may be also due to my own uh state of mind in that uh, I guess i'm pretty well my mind is pretty well made up about where I'm going and what I'm going to do uh, to the extent that it doesn't bother me too much about the next movie. Uh, So I I haven't felt compelled to, you know, enter into some kind of proactive movement in terms of um, what this thing is about and in terms of his attitude about it. And so from that point of view, it's hard for me to really make a suggestion to really Give a strong opinion or advice about how people should deal with it. Um, If it's, I hope it will, of course, give a positive image of Malcolm, and you know it it has a positive effect on uh, black people. I will give Spike the benefit of the doubt that he is he's, he's trying to do it. I think Spike has enough sense to know that he just cannot come deliberately and insult black people. He may make, may make a mistake in thinking that he's not doing so and do so, but uh, uh, the source of his bread and butter, even though he may be financed by the other people is still that black audience. And from the things that I've seen, I, I still will give him the benefit of that, that he will, he will try to do a favorable thing. Mm-hmm. It may not work out that way, but I'm willing to say that his intentions are not malicious. You see, now maybe being taken advantage of in, you know, in some sort of way, certainly that can happen. But uh, at this point, because of my Frank-like knowledge and study of what's is about, that's about as far as I can go. The other thing that I can say, whether the Malcolm X would be uh, negative. A positive is, is certainly nothing new in the history of black people. Mm-hmm. You know? And Malcolm X, will, if it's a negative movie, would be one among hundreds of thousands. Mm-hmm. And I have the faith in African American people that a negative Malcolm movie is not going to be a final death blow to black people's minds of where black people are going.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: And I have the faith that if it is negative, we will turn it around and use it as a base for motivating our people in the right direction and use it as a base for clearing, firing our consciousness even further and turning the key to operating in this society. Whether the sources that operate against us flow from people who look like us for people who don't look like us is to subvert negative intentions into positive outcomes. And what I would focus on more than anything, unless you're just going to uh, blow up the movie in the can, <laughs> uh, is yeah, let's wait and see what happens. And when we judge it and see what happens, let's move into action if necessary to counter its effect and let's turn it around to our advantage. Whether it's positive or negative, uh, at this point, I don't know what we will gain by getting into a, a big dog fight over mm-hmm. a movie we haven't seen. We don't even know what's going on in it,
5: mm-hmm.
4: and I don't really see a great advantage served by getting into a big scrap, public scrap, at this point of it. We'll survive, uh, Spike
5: Okay, <laughs> you
4: know. I, so I'm well, willing to and look and see and let the chips fall when they may and we'll deal with it when the time comes
5: all right
4: thank you very was, much for it, your
7: time uh, one thing mm-hmm. I was asked to ask you uh, where your power classes are going to be uh, we will be announcing them of course
4: you'll get the flyers around here but it looks because I'm writing the lectures out before I, I do them at the rate I'm writing them now it looks like September in that rate right? okay. okay
2: thank you thank you very much thank you for your time thank you Thank you. And Dr. Amos Wilson. Okay, um, all right, Black
3: power B 48. Bible
2: chapter.
3: That was all with Amos Wilson. Picking it all for us. Ride of the vote, urban response to white he- hegemony. That's coming in on us. We'd like to thank everybody for
4: coming out tonight, checking us out with Dr. Amos Wilson. i like y'all to tune in. Before the
6: House Saturday, we'll be dealing with geography, the history and politics of geography. Um, we're going to be uh, kicking that off at 10 p.m. Again, 10 p.m.
4: Eastern, 7 on the west side, the west side. And y'all line up in between. We'd like to go out the same way that we come in. That's a, with a praise, Nat Turner, Glory to Garvey, Long live the Spirit of Dr. Khalid Abdul Muhammad, Praise, Harriet Sutherman to am Wells and long live the spirits of the
6: van on in the house
3: make two
0: 18 plus.